This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. From America's farm to fork capital in Sacramento, I'm Amber Stott, chief food genius and founder of the Food Literacy Center, a nonprofit that inspires kids to eat their veggies and understand why. Raising Kale will chronicle the stories of food thought leaders that include chefs, farmers, doctors, leading experts, connecting them back to the communities that are building resilience around a fractured food system. Today, our food is linked to obesity, climate change, workers' rights, and so much more. It's time we understand the story behind the food we eat and the impact our food choices have on our health, the environment, and our economy. It's time to start Raising Kale. I've never actually been formally trained as a plant breeder. Once you are trained in plant breeding, you learn there's all these rules. Things should be this way. And without being shown those rules, I had no idea the, the no-no, the things you're not supposed to do. Running around doing all those things. And it was fantastic to find a chef that thinks the same. The painter Paul Cezanne once said, the day is coming when a single carrot, freshly observed, will set off a revolution. Today's guest is an actual kale raiser, as in he breeds the seeds that grow vegetables. This work is revolutionary. Seeds directly affect what we eat and our health. Farm to table starts with seeds. Think about it. Those orange tomatoes at the grocery store that bounce but don't break, someone created a seed that would turn into those exact tomatoes. They're great for shipping long distances, but they don't taste like much. What if our seeds were bred for flavor instead of travel? Today's guest is designing a new kind of recipe for our kitchens, one that begins with a seed. He's an associate professor at the School of Integrative Plant Science at Cornell University. Professor Michael Mazurik, welcome to Raising Kale. Thank you for having me. Good to be here, Amber. Yeah. So how did you get into plant breeding? Were you the kid that dug up a watermelon seed out of your lunch and like planted it in your backyard. Uh, where did this passion first strike? Well, uh, I am guilty of at one point, and this is a long time ago in my defense, I did save some caraway seed from some rye bread because I wanted to plant some more loaves of rye bread. I thought they were really great. <laughs> um, now, I, it was a, the circuitous path, path to find plant breeding. I, in the end, it, it brought together just a lot of things that I didn't really know you could bring together. I was really interested in human health. I love thinking about these biochemical pathways. Um, and, and some things appealed to the, the tinker in me. And then I just discovered in plants, uh, that's where a lot of that all comes together. And and not only is it like talking to those things, it's like all the 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 when your health goes wrong and we look for what to take to help get you back on track or to manage a condition there's no one dreaming that up in the back room at like one of the pharmaceutical companies they're, they're compounds that we're discovering in plants or microbes and we're learning how to make them um and so in plant breeding it ended up with this beautiful way to kind of speak to the all my interests kind of my do-it-yourselfer side my tinker side and it approaches creation and the tinker side, not just as I'm going to figure this out and do it. You're approaching it as also you can get the answers wrong and the plant can figure it out or the plant will mm. show you what's possible. Mm-hmm. And once I gave myself over to 
that's actually a really powerful process. If there's something that I can't quite understand yet, yeah. it became really cool. Well, and, and so you're, you're kind of starting to describe what seed breeding is. Um, so so yes. walk us through what exactly that is um, and, like, what do you do in your day job? It's so fun. Um, it is this great mix of part of it looks like I'm just farming really, really slowly and methodically paying way too much attention to each individual plant and doing the pollinations myself if I don't trust the bees to do it perhaps. <laughs> um, but then we bring in the materials uh, into our lab. And and what are the materials you the, that you're bringing oh, into your materials. lab? Yeah, help, help me uh, phrase it uh, in terms of the veggies, the glorious veggies. Okay. Um, so we, we're we bringing in, we'll start seeds in a flat, like you might see in the nursery to get transplants in. And we will go through and take a little leap from every uh, plant uh, in the flat, and we'll do hundreds, thousands of those. Wow. And we bring them back, and we do a genome scan on them. Uh, What's so a genome like scan? So if we look at the genome of the plant. So if, if anyone has, has uh, figured out their genealogy through 23andMe um, to figure out, like, what's your DNA sequence? Uh, you know, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty a cost-effective service to figure out more about yourself and what traits you might have, what your ancestry is. So the plants we can... Also, from like that one little leaf off every transplant, you get a good idea of the plant's genome and which ones we like to cross together. We're also harvesting all the, the peppers and the squash and the cucumbers. We bring them back to the lab to do either looking at the, the metabolites, the nutrients, figure out like how starchy, how sweet, uh, how much beta carotene antioxidants are there. You see all this in the plant DNA, more or less? Well, in, in the plant DNA, we, we can see a lot of potential, and there's some, there's some disease resistance we can look for. But then at, the, at harvest time, that's when we'll bring in, we'll, we'll go through and harvest, and we bring in truckloads of squash and peppers, and that's, uh, that's still pretty, we, we can bring some really exciting technology um, so anything in like the, the TV detective shows, the CSI things where they're, where they're going to like run a sample from some crime scene thing. We have the same versions of the same technology to do the, the same thing. We're looking at plant metabolites, you know, so we can see how much of uh, different antioxidants they have run through the mass spectrometer. Uh, and so it's just, I get to do this mix of, uh, like looking at the, the chemistry of the plants, how they taste, what their pedigrees are at the DNA level. And then uh, in the summer, I get to put on my boots and tromp around the field, seeing how it plays out. I love it. You're a plant detective, a vegetable detective. And, and so, um, so you then harvest these plants that you've been, you know, analyzing. And, and who's, who are you just like? taking a bite of them raw? Are you cooking with them? Are you doing both? What What does that look like? I do a lot raw, um, but um, like our peas and peppers, I'm mostly working with raw. Um, but for squash, we're, we're roasting that. And I discovered we were roasting it wrong, or at <laughs> least we could have been roasting it better. Um, so we, rather than... Uh, Sorry, uh, uh, the Betty Crocker cookbook. You know, putting a squash upside down in some water in the casserole and steaming it. That, that, that's a technique that works well for some applications. But also if you put them uh, cut sunny side up, the cut side up and just roast them at hotter temperatures for a longer time, you can get all these other great flavors. Um, and we had squash that I didn't think were that great when we were steaming them, microwaving them. <laughs> when uh, the the chef world opened my eyes to that other roasting approach, uh, like they were all doing for their squash in culinary school, it made uh, 
they made a world of difference. Okay, so now we got to put the pieces together here. So you're a scientist at Cornell, but you're hanging out with chefs. Uh, and I know for fact one is Chef Dan Barber, the co-owner of Row 7. And um, people might not know who he is. So he's like one of America's top chefs. He does all kinds of fun, creative stuff in the kitchen. For example, he takes like zucchini stems and makes them into a pasta noodle. Um, so he's he's really creative. He has a farm too. How did you guys meet and where did this cooking and science uh, collide? Yeah, it was, uh, I, we met at, at dinner, as you might expect. Uh, as a farmer, Jack Elgier at the Stone Barn Center that's connected with, with Blue Hill, um, uh, hosted a dinner and uh, brought the chef and plant breeder together. So the, the farmer uh, brought us together uh, and, and, yeah, it was been a blast ever since. Um, where I think we both realized uh, how much we could gain from what the other had to offer. Mm-hmm. So the chef would you know, love to have more. They're, they're always searching for the best ingredients. So the idea that they could actually direct the creation of their own best ingredient for what they're trying to do was uh i think very exciting to dan and for me there were i was working with a lot of vegetables that were were different and i wanted to do things that were different or if i wanted to do things that were different i've never actually been formally trained as a plant breeder and talk about how i got introduced um but once you are trained in plant breeding, you learn there's all these rules. <laughs> Things should be this way. And without being shown those rules, I had no idea the, the no-nos, the things that are not supposed to work, the things you're not supposed to do. Um, That's great. And running around doing all those things. And it was fantastic to, to, to find a chef that, and it turns out there's many more chefs that think, the same that was wanted to try all the the forbidden fruits the things that don't fit that commodity so we had a blast and then well and you just brought up a word that um i want to break down for our listeners the commodities so talk about kind of the traditional plant breeding and 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 how commodities play into that field versus what you're talking about here which is you know cooking something that a chef or breeding something that a chef would want to work with. What's the difference? Right. And the, the plant breeding goes way back to crop domestication where uh, thousands of years ago, all our ancestors were trying to get plants from the wild and make them more easy to cultivate, more palatable. So uh, it goes back a long time. But one of the big changes we saw, anything like industrial revolution time, as we had the approaches to manufacturing as these systems of interchangeable parts, right? So there's benefits to that because when your car breaks, you can order a part off the shelf. They don't have to custom make it to your particular car. But if you go, if you go to the supermarket, you might see bell peppers. And there's red bell peppers, and they're always there on the shelf. And you might notice the stickers change, the prices change, um, but these are peppers that are getting produced at many different places in the world and by different farmers in Israel and the desert and Netherlands, greenhouses in Florida and the steaminess down there and then California and then maybe locally part of the world. And the peppers, they're all different. They're, if you if, if they were they're different to the growers, they're different varieties. And if they if you sent a grower the wrong seed, the crop might fail completely. However, the consumer experience is there's always that four lobe blocky red bell pepper on the shelf. Uh, the country of origin might change and the price might change, but otherwise you have the same experience. Right? So that's commodities and so all the diversity of a crop is boiled down to something that is just 
consistent experience. There's one UPC code. So for inventory management, it's easy. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of like but, like every time you go to Starbucks, you can get the exact same, whether you're in Iowa or Europe, you're getting the same same bell pepper, same coffee, right? It's that franchise experience. And with grain, um, it's, it's more, it's easier to think about those systems maybe as you have, you have everybody's wheat from the U.S. is getting harvested and going into again, the same grain bins, and then the bakers can use it interchangeably. Um, it might be some blending, all-purpose versus pastry flour. But, um, yeah, it, it's this kind of one-size-fits-all approach. Um, but there, there's a – and that, that perhaps it has its place, uh, but there's things you miss. And so one of those is there's so much of the focus is toward making that pepper look the same to you. And in plant breeding, you you have to set priorities. There's only so many things you can make progress on. And if you're going to make a blocky cube that's the same shade of red, your priority then everything else has to be second or lower. Mm-hmm. If you work with the diversity within a crop, um, it's not only are you more free to make progress, um, it's also you can do new and exciting things. You can stand out in the marketplace. You can, mm-hmm. all the things that we love about our flower gardens and putting out mm-hmm. different flowers and what's new and how to, like the entire humanity of that experience, we can also bring to vegetables. Love it, love it, love it. And so, so you're taking this concept. Uh, you're introduced by a farmer, which I think is amazing, um, to this chef, and then you guys create a company. So, and I want to quote your website because I think it's so beautifully written. We believe flavor can succeed where commodification has failed. So. Talk about your company. Yeah. So I'm a, a co-founder of Row 7 Seeds. And the part of the genesis of it was you know, these are the, this is a playground that Dan and I had created for each other. And we, were, and we just realized we had to open it up. And so there's so many plant breeders like me that have these really cool projects, but they don't see a place for it in the marketplace. It seems impractical, but everybody really wants it. <laughs> and so this is a way for me to bring my friends in. And then Dan can also um, share it with the, the chef community and look at how different people in different parts of the country can be start to be exposed to this. And you can get it. And it's not just something you can get at a restaurant. You can get a packet of seeds so you can grow it in your garden. The farmer at your farmer's market can grow it. Your grocery store where it's sourcing from can get that. There's a lot of ways. Um, and the one of the key dynamics is the hardest thing in plant breeding is to make change without someone noticing the change, so like the correct commodification. And so if you're going to have all these different ingredients, uh, and getting people used to things looking different, chefs are the fantastic ambassadors to introduce us to that. Uh, if you see, uh, if you're watching a cooking show and someone's doing something, you say, oh, I can do this in my kitchen. If you have a cooking magazine or and you see there's a new recipe and so-and-so did it, then you want to try it. And so it's not only this really great collaboration, it also helps everyone else see uh, what we're so excited about and a chance to participate. Yeah, they're helping to educate about these amazing seeds that you guys are creating. And um, I want to talk about the unique seeds that you have. I It's so interesting. Earlier in our podcast, we introduced or we interviewed a chef farmer in Illinois who's using your seeds and then also fast yeah and then um and then here in Sacramento at my own farmer's market I was shopping and uh was introduced to one of your um plants the habanada and so basically that's a 
pepper with the flavor of a habanero, but it doesn't have that lip burning heat. So talk about these amazing vegetables and describe them, describe their flavors, their features. Yeah. And the habanada is um, that I love that one. Not only is, is the first thing I created, it was, it's how I learned plant breeding is this Montessori approach where my advisors, we, we found this, some cool peppers. I thought about how, if we cross them together, what could we make? And so I learned plant breeding through doing that. Very it's, cool. And habanada is, it is exciting as we figured out how, like if you have a bell pepper, say it's a very just vegetable flavor. If you have a habanero flavor, a habanero, they are delicious. Chili has a wax poetic and all the nuances they get from different habaneros and their scotch bonnet relatives etc and for the rest of us it's just like putting your tongue on the stove burner it's (laughs) and so and i myself wish i could eat more of them i love them i have to eat a lot of cheese and sour cream uh with mine um and so the habanada it was partly created to this national science foundation grant that's we were studying the biochemical mechanism and then this creation came out. So we were studying the aroma molecules that come out and the genes for capsaicin biosynthesis and understanding how they, the interplay between those as we were creating this. And that was really, really fun. The other crops you can see in the row seven lineup. Um, one of my, my others is the Beauregard. Uh, pea, we should, uh, maybe it's best to call it a flat snap. Uh, you eat it at this succulent stage as like a snow pea, but it gets bigger. And that one, it's one of those crops where if I had been formally trained in pea breeding, I would have known you can't breed that uh, because we might have all learned about Mendel's genes for flower color when we had to do punnett squares in high school biology i remember those squares and if you've seen that if you remember then you go look at the peas in the the grocery store and the garden and they all have white flowers you might wonder like where's what about this purple flower color that never seems to come up well that's because if you have the purple flowers you can have peas that can be or usually are kind of bitter astringent so you can have these beautiful purple potted peas the plants are more robust, more resilient. They can defend themselves against temperature and insects better. But, and through the literature, you'd see, as we read scientific papers, but they're bitter and astringent. So, of course, you're going to get rid of those hmm. uh, when you come across those in your breeding program. And, well, I hadn't read those papers. Uh, <laughs> I, I just you know, starting out, is like, well, why can't we do this? And so we are to be able to create a Beauregard pea that is a purple pod. It holds a lot of that color when people cook with it and steam it, blanch it. And, and also we were able to get rid of almost all that bitterness and astringency that otherwise plagues that rainbow vegetable experience. So it's beautiful um, and it tastes good. Indeed. That's, and, and it's getting at kind of the, the art. Of vegetables, um, you can you can look at all the crops that are available. So you can look at all the butternut squash that you can imagine on, and maybe I can imagine more than most. So it's a commodity thing where there are I could rattle off probably fifty different varieties cultivars of butternut squash. For most people, it's quote unquote butternut squash. Um, <laughs> So there's ways to make a crop stand out, make your a variety stand out, um, help get people's expectations aligned with what could be. And it, it transforms the way we eat, the way the standards we have I think, in the marketplace. Apples uh, are one of those where um, there's not just a bin of red apple and green apple, you can go, you can shop by name. They all have names and you can decide you want, 
your Braeburn or your Honeycrisp or your Snapdragon or something more traditional, maybe you still like red delicious apples. Um, so by having distinctiveness, things really stand out. And by being distinctive, um, kids, people want to give things a try. Um, I am breeding a lot of crops that are uh, they're aligned with things my kids would like. Um, they're my harshest critic. I uh, know I have a winner when they like it. So you'll see in my portion of the Row 7 catalog a tendency to breed towards small, colorful things. But also you see my, my colleagues starting to get in the mix. We have Jim Myers with his Midnight Roma tomato. It's a, it's a purple skin uh, sauce tomato that makes a sauce that's unbelievable. Erwin mm. Goldman has his badger flame beet that you eat it raw and it's like everything a carrot always wanted to be, but there's beet <laughs> doing it. Dirt. And, and Walter DeYoung has his upstate abundance potato in New York. We're all used to these salt potatoes at all the, the summer chicken dinners and all the benefit fundraisers is usually a side of salt potatoes, these little new potatoes. Walter is a potato that only ever gets that big. It never fit the commodity system, but it's delicious and people want it. And so why not create a way to give people what they want? I'm getting so hungry. These all sound amazing. And um, you talk about your kids being some of your taste testers. Talk to me about how you, who who taste tests, what's that experience like? Tell us what that part of the the science looks like. Oh, there's a lot of it that's not pretty. Um, (laughs) I think the people are familiar with like, taste test like you know the pepsi challenge you'll you know you have like this uh, this one or that one like the eye doctor like this lens or that one this lens better work um and we'll narrow what we're working with down to that but where it starts out is or habanada started out is we had hundreds of plants in the field and we had to figure out which one we uh were, were tasting and so for that, you know, sensory panels, you can get them through a dozen samples. Uh, you can't be like, come on, we'll bring a sensory panel and we're going to taste 500 new peppers. Uh, because they'll, you, you wear people out. You need to have someone that has like a vested interest. So a lot of it is me going through the field, bite testing, uh, many uh, different peppers for the peas to find the peas that were not bitter and astringent. There were two of us that would go through hundreds of plants. It had this greenhouse packed full of like 300 plants. And you go through and like you take a bite of the pea pod, and usually it was a grimace. And oh. That one. But everyone's like, like, wait, this one's okay. And our main rule when we're doing this, we're not rating and coming up with all the, the, the wine nuances. Oh, this has notes of this, hints of this. It's yum and yuck, yum and yuck. <laughs> I like that. It's a very black and white criteria. <laughs> yeah, uh, for the first test. And the, the biggest test is you quickly get really sick and tired of sampling something. Uh, for that day or maybe for the season. By next season, I'm going to love tea tasting but again. But for, for a while, you're going to be frozen and tired. It's like maybe turkey the week after Thanksgiving. You're done with turkey. <laughs> so just imagine that a hundred times more. Um, so when you find something that you're sick and tired of tasting and you find yourself taking a second bite, that's when you know you have a winner. And then from there... Then it looks more like some of the, the sensory testing or the evaluations with rubrics that people would expect, or they might have seen with wine tastings or other tomato tastings. But that first step, it's yeah, black and white. Those scientific Latin terms of yuck or yum. 
<laughs> so, um, so how many times, for example, let's use these peas, how many years of growing them and doing this yuck yum taste test before you're moving a pea forward into, say, a chef's kitchen? And so in a typical hopeful scenario, there's probably six to nine generations of that. These go fast. We can get three a year. So you're looking at three years where there's three seasons of way more peas than you'd want to sample. At first, it gets better as you go. Um, if you're making progress, you're going to get rid of most of the yuck the first year. Um, but then um, once you have them that's consistently, you think it's promising, uh, we'll, we'll try to start sharing it with the, the chef right away if we can. Um, but to get it to out to everybody in the world, um, or so the seed tags you can buy, it's going to be a couple of generations beyond that because there's the, the developing the crop, there's developing the seed, and then there's actually growing it. Um, so there's, if you have your average, your typical farmer that's growing uh, the, the harvest for you, there's actually a whole crop cycle before that that's to grow the seed uh, to be able to give to the farmer to grow the crop from that seed. Uh, so it can take a while, but one of the exciting things is this ability to have these participatory systems where you, as we're creating it and we're deciding, is it something that's going to work to share broadly with the world? Um, it, it goes, the, the whole process goes a lot better and smoothly. Uh, and or maybe it's just the process goes. Uh, when there's someone on the other end, you know, wants it. One of the challenges without that is I'm creating a variety that I'm hoping the seed company will want to pursue. And the seed company will do it if they think there's the growers uh, and the home gardeners they would like to plant that seed. And those people will plant that seed and grow it if they think there's a customer. Uh, and if there's a, a distributor, a produce distributor in the middle. So that's a really long chain that ends up being very safe set. So if it's a little bit better, something that's already there, that process goes. But as soon as you have someone at the other end that's like, I love it, and then the, a new invention, some new diversity, a new seed, and quickly sweep through that process because the, the chef is taking the risk, mm -hmm. which isn't risk for a chef. It's what they do. Mm -hmm. so. I love this. And... Uh, I mean, it's just such a wonderful story, and it's, it's very mad scientist, but it's also very simple, and that's what's so beautiful about it. And I want to get a little bit deeper and talk about how this work is important to our food system, uh, because this isn't just about yummy food. That's important for sure, but um, yeah. health and nutrition also play a part of the story, right? So... When we're told to eat a rainbow of fruits and veggies, the reason for that is that rainbow of color is functioning in the plant as their defense against excess light or how they harness light energy to do photosynthesis and grow. In our bodies, we've evolved to use those same metabolites those antioxidants for the plant as antioxidants for ourselves and so where you see color you see nutrition you see some of the nutrition it's hard. you don't the exception to it is you don't necessarily see if the plant has enough zinc or iron for your diet but you get to see a lot of the other nutrients. and if you think about a plant as it's evolving and they're going to have flowers to produce fruit you know, in the flowers, the, the, they produce nectar, uh, and that's what draws the bees in. And so there's a reward, there's a symbiosis. The actual fruit on the plant, it evolves a similar symbiosis. They want C 
feed this person. But it wants us, us, the spoiler alert, uh, we are the seed dispersers. Uh, mammals were the seed dispersers. We're, we're, we're one of those. The, the plants needed to make sure the seed dispersers were healthy and getting these nutrients, but also were getting the, the picking the fruit when it was all the way ripe, when the seeds were mature and that would be viable to move around. Mm-hmm. So a lot of fruit, as they ripen, think about like the peach when you, are shopping for peaches, you know, you're sniffing, you're thinking, is it soft, is it the right color? When a peach is ripe and you get the, the color and the intoxicating fragrance, that's it signaling, my seed is good to go, come get me. And that's why there's a fleshy fruit in the first place. And many of those aromas we cue in on that we would love about a vine ripe peach they actually are breakdown products from essential nutrients, essential amino acids and some of these antioxidants that you were seeking out. And so that's how we can, we're cued in to know when something's ripe and when we smell those aromas, that's actually a signal, beyond a signal, that is the essential nutrient. You can do a, a little bit of a, a the, the at-home version of the experiment. Um, so the easiest examples of this to see are in watermelon and tomatoes. Um, in watermelon, the some of the main watermelon aroma is actually a breakdown product of lycopene, the red antioxidant in a watermelon. And so if you can find a yellow or an orange flushed watermelon, Yum. It'll be good for you. It'll taste good, but it won't be really be like watermelon. In tomatoes, um, if you have the the vine ripe tomato and one out of your garden that farmers market is just like red and soft and ready for sandwiches or whatever, however you want, if it makes it inside, you it will have so much fragrance. And then we open it up, you'll see it's so red inside. Same thing, the lycopene is doing the fragrance. Um, then you're smelling the compounds that are coming from the color. Uh, and if you get the, the pink crunchy from the grocery store side by side, it won't have that fragrance. And when you cut it open, it's not going to be very red. And, and this so is- you can do that experiment at home. You're pinpointing actually one of, in my opinion, one of the hardest things about the COVID pandemic for me has been when I am shopping for fruits and vegetables, wearing a mask, and I can't smell if they're ripe. I, I remember or walking. You don't know if you should be. people look at you. (laughs) I remember walking through a grocery store in the summer, and I could smell a melon, a musk melon. From, mm-hmm. from through my mask halfway across the produce aisle, and I knew I was going to buy and eat that melon because I could smell it through my mask. Yeah, it's so important. It was recruiting its seed disperser. <laughs> <laughs> it was delicious. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that's really a wonderful way to think about, um, you know, the plants are doing that to us. And so if they're not doing that to us, it's, it's not probably as healthy um, and it's definitely not going to be as delicious. Um, so let's also talk about patenting seeds because at Row 7, you guys do not get a patent. And a patent basically... Um, talk about what a patent means in in the seed world. Um, define that, and then talk about why it's important to farmers and to our food system to not have patents on seeds. And th- this year is starts to to illustrate why patents can be challenging. Um, if so, many of us are looking, you know, at seed catalogs that are sold out, uh, or there's limited sales, there's shortages. Um, as many more people are gardening, people are buying packets of seeds, and which is great. We have to grow the supply and hopefully it stays. But one of the sources people could get their seed from is saving it themselves uh, or having other seed companies, other distributors being able to share that seed. The challenge is 
that we took a model that probably made sense in many types of inventions and applied it to, some people would say the problem is applying it to forms of life. I would say it's applying it to some of our basic human rights. Um, the, the patents, they started out with the intention and uh, in, in way and they do function well in like the technology space. If someone's going to come up with a great idea for a new smartphone, they can get a patent on that idea so that way they can talk to people about it. And then they will reveal to others how they built it and what they're doing. And, and then when the patent expires, that can be something that other people can adopt that approach. And for a, a new smartphone, different hard goods, things that are, you know, they're, they're nice to have, but really not critical. That process probably makes sense. But as you uh, try to apply that to food, what you start to do is what a patent would do is say I had patented habanada and as a way to have this a new way to get fragrance in a pepper. Um, then I could own the idea for that approach. I could prevent other people from trying to also breed flavorful peppers like habanada. I could prevent people from trying to adapt it to where they live by making cross-pollination. And I could prevent people from saving their own seed even in the event of a national shortage. And that really just comes close to home when you start to think about gardening last year, that beyond a hobby, beyond something like you or your neighbor may be doing, it becomes something that is very essential to humans, where if you think about like our, what do we need to survive in terms of like fresh air, clean water, food, once you make the ability to grow food owned where someone else is dictating that, it, sets, it puts you up in a really dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. And in terms of the more practical uh, approaches is when someone finds a new way to make a vegetable disease resistant. Um, so if your tomatoes get wiped out by late blight, breeders can be able to find a late blight resistant tomato and they can sell the seed and other people can get that seed, make a cross pollination and try to breed a cherry tomato, something that works for Illinois, something that works for California, for Florida. It's all different and all these people can start working on the problem. Mm -hmm. um, for the other diseases like downy mildew that might be taking out your basil or your cucumbers that that resistance was patented and so no one else can work with that source of resistance that biodiversity that's collected somewhere else in the wild toward sharing that solution with others that's the other place you get kind of a tangible like wait what um yeah so beyond like <laughs> If you save your lettuce seed from your garden, will they find you and sue you? It limits, um, it, it puts the power of our food system in the hands of a few rather than in the hands of many. And, in, and particularly in, in, a, in a pandemic like we've seen where there are food shortages, we want these solutions in more hands is what it kind of boils down to. Is that sound correct? It's, it's, yeah, it's, that's totally correct. And I think it's, and it is like reflecting on, food last year, then it starts to really, I think, make, be, become clear, um, like the, the gravity of it. It's easy to feel, it's easy to be very removed from where your food comes from. And last year, uh, we, a lot of us got reconnected and we're discovering a lot of things, including this. Absolutely. Yeah. We interviewed Alice Waters earlier in the season and she said she was afraid she didn't know if she would be able to get 
salad. So she was planting lettuces in her backyard. She's a chef and she was fearful of this and everybody felt that same level of concern. And so I think, you know, what you're doing to um, keep these patent free is so important. And thank you for that contribution to our food system. It's really important. Well, I'm glad. And, and I'll note there's, uh, we, we are uh, one of many uh, that are doing it, but we're so glad uh, to be able to add our voice. Yeah. Um, and, and you touched on something else I want to talk about, and that is um, disease resistance. You um, have traveled around the world in search of disease-resistant traits for these plants. So describe that process, why it's valuable, and, you know, why do you have to look outside of U.S. borders for some of this? Yeah, there's a lot of, yeah. So yes, one reason you have to look outside of U.S. borders is that crops were domesticated or they're their center of origin around the world. So for squash, I work with, you have that center of origin in Central America. And so if you're going to look for diversity, it's there. Um, watermelon was first, its center of origin is in Africa. Cucumber is Asia. Peas, the Middle East, Mediterranean. So once you take a few varieties or you want to breed them all to be the same as the varieties come from there, you can think about it like when we try to work with endangered animals in zoos to preserve them when their habitat in the wild is threatened, you end up with issues with inbreeding and weaknesses and also you're keeping them very much in like suspended animation the pests and diseases are continuing to evolve, but you just have the one sample with limited genetic diversity. Meanwhile, at the center of origin, where you have the wild ancestors of the domesticated crop or the land races, people are growing without pesticides, so the plants just have to be able to duke it out for themselves. That's where you find the the natural robustness of the disease resistances. So you have to be bringing them back together, the, the crop you love and the, the plant that can improve it um, and be bringing those together often. We're lucky in the US we have a, um, a gene bank where, and it's others that have collected it, I get to just uh, request hundreds of peppers to be able to look at in my own field close to my home. Um, but you have all these collections globally where we can you know, look through the plants that have been collected from all over the world. And then as we breed new plants, we can share them back out. And so that sharing process is, is critical. We see you know, different imported pests and insects all the time. We have to, we have to evolve uh, our food. Awesome. Yeah. Well, what do you want our listeners to do? How can they help you raise kale? Literally <laughs> and figuratively. There's, there's a few ways. One is um, to, when, when you see, uh, when you get a piece of produce, when you get a new fruit or veggie, if you spend a little bit of time thinking about trying to connect with where it came from, especially if you're going to connect with a local grower, someone regionally that's producing it. And if you have a, a way to connect with them and then to buy from them, to support them, then you're going to be supporting a system, voting with your dollars, that is going to help create this regionalized distributed food system. It's going to make sure there's going to be seeds that are adapted to where you are so that you can have this independence in your community, in your region towards producing your food. So, um, so when you see those habanadas out at the farmer's market, make sure you're buying those. That, that would be great. And look for, yeah, so I think the, those narratives, those connections, where did this come from? Uh, all the know your farmer uh, things really come into play. Um, the other uh, thing, um, if I get two wishes, 
is <laughs> totally you know, in terms of the when there's new legislation uh, coming, there's a new farm bill coming, and we're looking at what sort of research is getting funded, like what, like where are tax dollars going to go? I think one of those important things is to be have, if you value those new fruits and veggies, if you value the farmer having crops that actually are fit his region, your region and system, um, there are the USDA programs that support plant breeding. And there's, needs to be more plant breeders uh, and we need to have more opportunities to have the stable support for this long-term project of crafting these varieties for for you in your region and so i think um, somewhere in those bills uh hopefully there's something uh to help you and you can help advocate for it Absolutely. Love that. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for being an actual kale raiser uh, out there and making our food system more delicious, which is so important. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me to chat with you today. And please tell Chef Barber I said hello. <laughs> I will. He's, he's special. And I think you, uh, I saw somewhere I read that you, I think, very accurately observed that he has value-driven I thought that was one of the, the the best ways to describe him and what he Thank you, and keep up the great work. I had so much fun talking to Michael. I can't wait to try his purple peas. Thanks for joining me. Please help me out and subscribe to this podcast. Share your favorite episode with your friends on social media. Check out Raising Kale for resources, past episodes, and more. You can also find information about my book, Food Anatomy Activities for Kids. Be sure to listen to our next episode. I sit down with Danielle Nirenberg, the founder of the nonprofit think tank, Food Tank. She and her team keep consumers informed about the growing number of issues that affect our food system. From COVID-19's impact on the food system to food sovereignty to global nutrition, she's reporting from the front lines to help us make better choices in the grocery store and beyond. Next time on Raising Kale.